Piece by Piece, the musical theatre talk show podcast. This is part two of our discussion of West Side Story. Our host, Joe Bunker, is joined by guests Jason Carr, Andy Coxon, Carly Mercedes-Dyer, Nikolai Foster and Gabriella Garcia. We rejoin them as they begin exploring Act Two of West Side Story. Welcome back to Piece by Piece. This is Act Two of our look at West Side Story. But first, this is a recording we made last week. I'm playing the piano part and Andy Coxon and Gabriela Garcia recorded their lines individually and remotely, but have been brought together by the wizardry of Auburn Jam music. This is the balcony scene from West Side Story. For an hour then. I cannot. Forever. Right, then I'm coming up. Maria. Momentito, mamá. Maria. Maria. Calladito. It is dangerous. I'm not one of them. You are. But to me, you're not. Just as I am, one of them. To me, you are all the... Si, ya vengo, papá. Maruca? His pet name for me. I like him. He will like me. No. He's like Bernardo. Afraid. <laughs> Imagine being afraid of you. You see? I see you. See only me. Tonight, 
tonight The world is full of light With suns and moons all over the place Tonight, tonight The world is wild and bright Glowing mad, shooting sparks into space Today the world was just an address A place for me to live in No better than alright But here you are And what was just a world is a song I'm not afraid. They're strict with me. Please. Good night. Buenas noches. I love you. Yes, yes, hurry. No, wait. When will I see you? No, no, no. Uh, tomorrow. I work at the bridal shop. Come there. At sundown? Yes. Good night. Good night. Tony! Come to the back door. See. Si. Tony! What does Tony stand for? Anton. Te adoro, Anton. Te adoro, Maria. Good night, good night. Sleep well and when you dream, dream of me. Superb. We're on to act two of West Side Story. It opens with I Feel Pretty, a song Maria sings as she's getting ready for her date with Tony. On the surface, it's a fairly straightforward, joyous expression of young love. But it's also given this added weight and significance because of the dramatic irony that we know that her brother's been killed and she hasn't found out yet. So it's got this particular poignancy as well as this joy. Gabby, I know you wanted to talk about this song. In particular, maybe we could talk about the fact that for the 50th anniversary production of Broadway, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote some Spanish lyrics that were sort of signed off by Sondheim, um, where Maria sang in Spanish for this song. Uh, what, what difference does that make and what, what does that mean to you? That revival was very, very special because I felt a lot of the things that didn't make sense before made sense to me. Obviously, I'm biased and I'm seeing it from different eyes, you know, from being represented on stage and from actually seeing a, a Puerto Rican girl not knowing how to speak English fully. I saw a lot of myself in her at that point where I was like, even though I've been here for almost 12 years now, there's still times where I feel so happy or so sad or so angry that I can't express myself in English and I just burst out into Spanish. 
Um, so I think, especially in I Feel Pretty, she's just so happy that in that version she's just able to go, ah, hoy me siento tan hermosa, and she's just like breaking into Spanish because it is real. Uh, it felt very real to me. Go on, give us, give us a bit of the Spanish. Do you, do you know the Spanish lyrics off by heart? Hoy me siento tan hermosa que el alcalde me quiere honrar tan preciosa. Sé que hoy me van a coronar. Yes. Hey. That was a Miss America bit, sort of bit. But um, I do, I do really liked it, and I, I, I feel like I did try and put it in our version, but um, I feel like it worked. First, we didn't want to alienate the audience, but also it feels like we found the truth within the just speak spoken English with that Maria and with the, the setting we had. However, the, the Lin-Manuel Miranda version and that version always rings true to me. Because it's interesting that it's the lyric that sometimes is probably most critical of. Because Sheldon Harnick told him that the, the lyrics were too sophisticated for somebody who's just learned English and doesn't have that vocabulary. To me, they would be speaking Spanish together and she's not stupid and it's very playful. So I, I like the lyric and I believe it. We, we believe they're talking in Spanish to each and other. And they're in song, they're, they're in lyric times. All those internal rhymes give, give it such playfulness and such mm. a, get so much bubble. They're so different from the kind of very plain lyrics that particularly we get later in things like A Boy Like That and I Have A Love, which don't feel like lyrics. There, there, there isn't much rhyme yeah. and all that going on. That, I mean, I think it's, jo I think it's joyous. And yeah. she's mocking i feel like that's why those lyrics are what sometimes feels a bit embarrassed about the lyrics is because really i feel like maria is just mocking she's not being stupid or she's just mocking what she's seen other american girls do sorry steve we like your work we do yeah he's <laughs> so caustic about it but what's interesting also is, is if you read the different artists describing west side story in retrospect they all have different reasons about why they think it was good i think only jerry robbins maintained that it was a masterwork and it was everything about it was brilliant sondheim thinks it was adventurous in form but actually lots of the content wasn't so great i do feel like the the recent broadway production definitely missed the trick by eliminating it completely so this is the recent production that's been on broadway uh, directed by Ivy von Hove, um, and they've cut it down to one act. It's sort of one hour and a half straight through. They cut I Feel Pretty, um, and in what came as a surprise to nobody, uh, Ivo von Hove chose to use video projection because that's kind of his thing. <laughs> but you saw that, didn't you, Gabby? You saw that production? Yes, yes, I did. And did you miss that song? Did you miss the interval? I did, but I do feel like in that production, maybe I Feel Pretty would have jarred because it was seen from a different perspective. However, if there was to be an interval, definitely I Feel Pretty brings you back into, okay, we're in the theatre and ah, and it really slaps you back in the face when that that change it is a very i feel like that was uh, one of the hardest scenes for me to do when finishing i feel pretty from love for a pretty wonderful boy boom and then all of a sudden chino's there and chino's telling me my lover killed my brother um and i love that i love that switch and, and it's like you, you you appreciate the fall all the more because you've been in this place of elation it, it did make the drama continue through as opposed to an interval where it pauses and you have to rebuild again it went straight from the rumble to chino telling maria bouldering into this more drama more drama more drama this is the hardest bit for tony in in the interval version because he's in high stakes at the end of act one and has to come back in at that and if you have a, a relaxing interval and a cup of tea and check your Twitter, you kind of, you drop the ball. Whereas he got to come straight out of the rumble to running into Marie. I'm so sorry. Right. He didn't have to reset. So Tony does come find her. Adrenaline fueled, running from the rumble and from the police. Comes to Maria's window, tries to explain what's happened and, and begs her for forgiveness. 
says he'll turn himself into the police, but she forgives him immediately, amazingly, and begs him to stay. Then have the somewhere sequence about this place for us, this uh, sort of idealised vision of a world in which we're not so hung up on our differences. I don't know how you guys staged in your productions, but this is often staged as a kind of ballet, kind of harking back to the Agnes de Mill, Oklahoma, Carousel, ballets. How did you go about staging that in your production, Nicolai? We did a sort of version of a ballet. With the whole thing we sort of treated like a film, so we went very close up, then it went very dark. And then the two of them found themselves in sort of a version of Elysium, I guess. And there was, for the first time in our very sort of bleak, bombed out version of the West Side production, we saw sky and we saw clouds and we saw sunlight and they were drenched in beautiful landscapes. So we saw phrases of choreography. We saw stage pictures that we recognised from Act One. But now everybody was enacting those same phrases of choreography with a sense of joy, everybody being at one with each other. And we also um, had our youth theatre as part of that. Just the act of having genuinely 13, 14-year-olds moving through that space lent it a very sort of poetic, very magical and very peaceful scenario, I felt. As the music started to darken, and we then went into the nightmare, you know, the colour faded and we went sort of back into our world of blood and viscera and guts. People were watching this sort of blood sport and we was then a sort of comment on media, um, binary forces which operate within politics and within, well, our media today. And that's sort of how we navigated that and then leaving uh, Tony Maria stranded back in the West Side, these two very lonely figures. And the sense of hopelessness at the end of it was very stark and very brutal. And probably the fullest expression yet of what you were talking about earlier on about the gap between the reality of the story and the possibility that's expressed in song. And then it goes even further in this sequence to you know the absolute dream and then crashing back down to reality. We wrestled with it, uh, maybe a bit like Nikolai wrestled with the opening. And we, we, we even looked at a version where most of it was cut. When we pieced the, the, the act together, I mean, it just didn't work at all. And you realise how it's much more than just a, a sort of a divertissimo in the second act. It's structurally really important. The song somewhere is normally, it's just says sung by a girl. It's just a disembodied voice. But we had it certainly started by anybody's and then actually had the company join in. And anybody in our vision would would then go on to be key in breaking up um, the taunting scene. Yeah, it felt like it was it was nothing to do with Marie and Tony. All of a sudden, it was mm. the 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 lens that we've been following their story. All of a sudden, opened up, and it was actually about the whole community. Yeah system. The next scene is in the alley and this is where the Jets encounter uh, the policeman um, and they sing G Officer Krupke which is a song that feels like it could have belonged to an earlier age of kind of vaudeville uh, sort of set piece number and it's tonally it's quite odd because it comes so hot on the heels of of the murder and in the movie they switched it around so cool came in this position and Geoffrey Kropke came earlier which made a lot more sense but actually when in the two-act version they found that it didn't work having it anywhere else and actually this injection of comedy was really helpful but a lot of critics and audiences the ones that didn't love the show tended to find this song maybe tasteless or something to object to do you have any thoughts on why that would have been, Jason? We certainly tried not to play it just for, you know, for musical comedy values and those boys really tried to explore what it meant for them. They would all have been down the police station at some point, you know, um, and 
to really explore how they feel about their injustices um, with the system and to put all that anger into it, which isn't to say that it isn't entertaining, um, but certainly to channel all that real feeling in, in, into the song. There we were, similar times, working on this great piece, doing what I believe were very different productions, but, you know, it's such a strong piece of work that, you know, if you approach it with respect and curiosity, it does work still. It's hard, really hard to cast, find those people who are real triple threats who can really act as well as sing and dance. Yeah. I think for me, it's probably one of the greatest um, songs ever, you know, sort of written for the musical, uh, for the musical stage. It sort of does um, everything I think great writing should do. It's entertaining, it's witty, it's political. It sort of gives you a sort of snapshot into the inner world of characters perhaps you didn't know about before. And again, it goes back to this idea within our culture that, especially I think within musical theatre, because there's such dreadful snobbery around musical theatre as an art form, that a love song can only be a love song and therefore it's soppy and it's wet and it's lyrical. Whereas, you know, like we were saying about one hand, one heart, I mean, really what they want to do after they've married each other is to consummate their relationship. And there's nothing to say that in the staging of that moment, it can't be both lyrical and sensuous and all of the things we think of in in the Romeo and Juliet tropes but it can also have an underbelly of sexual tension and the drive of wanting to make love to somebody that you're desperately in love with and in the same way that Krupke I mean it's genius they are sophisticated they are educated they are streetwise and in Officer Krupke they have syntax and words and examples of the world around them which you sort of think well I wish you were running for the White House because action my god your view of the world is is absolutely unique and your grasp of what has gone wrong in your society is is more profound and well articulated than most politicians and it was interesting speaking to Stephen Sondheim about it afterwards and he asked, you know, what we felt about G Officer Krupke and whether it should be there. And again, audiences are so smart. They can understand that you can present something that's vaudeville and is entertaining and anarchic and is, you know, filled with shtick as a sort of Kurt Vile-esque means to give you a, a palate cleanser before you then have to go and deal with the horror and the reality of a young woman being raped and then the final tragic denouement of the play. And rather than it just being relentless horror, as in life at the moment, we are presented with thousands of people every day around the world dying in the most horrific way. And there are moments we all enjoy turning on the telly or watching a silly clip on Twitter or joking with the people we're isolated with. We can have a moment of levity. We can have a moment of joy. And that's real life. And that's what the writers in their true genius realised in that moment that within this bleak, horrible landscape, it would be wrong to judge and think if you were in a gang, all you see all day long is, you know, street fighting and, and drama and people murdering each other. Of course you don't. There are moments of hijinks, of silliness, of anarchy. It's such an important moment. You can tell I get very passionate about it. It's also interesting thinking about it coming on the back of Somewhere, and you talked about Somewhere and that ballet sequence giving you a kind of, uh, Gabby, I think you described it as sort of panning out and seeing the bigger social picture. And in a way, 
Krupke follows in that vein, albeit in a completely different style, because they're say, they, they, they know how they're seen by the people. They know what a judge will say, what a policeman will say, what a psychoanalyst will say. And they take those labels and they say, fine, we're going to own it. I'm deprived on account I'm deprived. And it, it's another moment of just stepping back from the sort of minutiae of Tony and Maria's relationship and going, yeah, look at the world around us. None of these solutions are adequate. All these people profess to know what we need, but actually we're just being passed from one to the other. And then vaudeville is kind of used as the medium. But I know that in the one on Broadway recently, they played video footage of police brutality in the background to really hammer that point home. Next comes what is maybe, uh, for me, one of the, the best pieces of music theatre writing ever, which is A Boy Like That. I have a love, which is Anita... Nodding, nodding, nodding. Yeah, lots of <laughs> nodding going on. It doesn't come across so well on the audio medium. <laughs> Anita comes to see Maria, realises that Tony's been there and is incandescent with rage that Maria has been seeing this murderer, the guy that's killed Anita's lover, Maria's own brother. And they're this furious counterpoint duet, which then resolves into the most beautiful, lyrical, mutual declaration of understanding and love. And it's hard to imagine in any other medium, if this were a play, whether you could achieve something convincingly in that short space of time, I would venture that you couldn't. Do you want to talk a little bit about performing that piece and what it was like for you, Carly? I definitely agree with you there. Me as an actress, I don't know if I would be able to be that full with rage and then be able to be talked around to be like, okay, I see your point and empathise. That number, I found it really hard, actually, because I'm naturally quite an upbeat person. So I'd actually be like, mm-hmm, just <laughs> to, like, disappear and be in a room on my own. Because to get into that headspace, you can't kind of, like, float on stage and be like, hey, how's it going, Maria? You really have to kind of dig into what you saw. And I'd always try and stay and watch the rumble just so that I knew what I was going into in that scene. But, I mean, with the orchestration and the music, the way it's written that does a whole lot of work for me anyway, because just the impact that it has from a still moment and just kind of the realisation of what Maria's done and then that music kicking in, it just, it sends you into a, a completely different headspace. And they're both grieving. They've both lost the dearest people in their lives. I, I guess I, one of the things I'm fascinated by is, is why Maria is so loyal to Tony, who she's known about 24 hours. That's hard to get your head around. He's, he's killed your brother. What's she going through and how does she convince Anita to forgive her and to see the sense in what she's doing? Well, it's it's her first love. When they promised each other their love, it is real. They did get married in her eyes. So I do feel like when Tony comes in and says, I've done this, but I'm going to go and give myself in, she doesn't immediately forgive him. I mean, how how can you forgive the murderer of your brother she doesn't but she she knows now the only thing that she has left is him she doesn't really have time to mourn she's just like well no no stay it feels like during somewhere they finally get to consummate their their promise to each other and if for a second everything felt fine for a second it felt like it was all a dream and then there's that slap again actually back to reality no this happened and he's a murderer and i feel like there that's when she has finally the time to go okay he may be a murderer but i love him and he makes me feel like nothing i've ever felt before and i know that's there is something right in that and you should know that there is something right in that because you saw that in my brother. And even though she is mourning, she's trying to make sense of that. Whenever I've seen the production before or in the movie, or I've been like, what? 
are you sleeping with him? He just killed <laughs> yeah. your brother. What do you mean? It, it does really make you go, no. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterclass. You get to understand every night a little bit more how uh, the process of mourning works because there's no formula to it. You just don't have time to think about it. The piece is very of the moment. Nothing is, okay, we think about this. We deliberate over how I'm going to deliver this sign and be really funny or a really thought about moment. This is what happens at the moment. I say it because that's what I feel right now. So I think most of those things, she's like, I'm not thinking about Tony killed my brother. I'm thinking this has happened. My brother's dead and I've got this connection and I know I just see him. That's all I see. I don't see a murderer. But if it was an alternate universe and Tony doesn't die and then they live happily ever after, how long do they live happily ever after? Because over time it'd be like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you killed my brother. Yeah, you're right. There's this ticking clock going through the whole thing. That, it's on a metronome. Yeah, and the you know, there's a time for us. There's a sort of a nuance to that lyric, which is also there is time and we at the moment we don't have time because constantly there's this threat there's this danger around us that makes everything feel heightened and dangerous but by the end of it Anita relents and it's beautiful writing because they've been singing in counterpoint and then they sing in harmony and the last note they sing together is in unison well it's an octave apart a long sustained G and they're musically it enacts the reconciliation that's taken place after which Anita goes and agrees to take a message to Tony, say, Maria will come and meet you, but be warned, Chino is after you, and he's out for blood, and he's got a weapon. But she goes to see the Jets, and, and what happens then, Nikolai? She goes with grace and a sense of altruism to go and support somebody who at the beginning of the play is, for cultural reasons, defined as the enemy, but she goes to help sort of rebuild and bridge uh, division and the jet boys who are defined and I suppose groomed by the brutality of the world that they've been brought up within. So they're unable to sort of get a sense of um, that and they begin to taunt her and that taunting then turns into a rape. It, it, it turns into the most despicable act you could ever do to a woman. And again, it shows you the complete breakdown of the society that these kids have been brought up within. But also, um, they're still in battle mode. This is only a, a couple of hours after the rumble. That's one of the things to bear in mind. They're still in that heightened mode. And it becomes kind of collateral damage in in terms of like the continuation of that rumble i mean what was that like for you to, to to go through carly they literally can't get their heads around the audacity of this woman to come into docks where they hang out extending an olive branch they're just like how how could you in any universe be doing that after bernardo's been murdered but when they say their words like i want to go i've got to bust all those things they have to feel and they have to like exert their energies did you want to make a comment on the on the way that's underscored? I mean, there is this fascinating moment where we have the mambo being heard on the on the jukebox, and then the the orchestra sneaks in. I mean, what's so wonderful is it's not it, often that's the sort of thing in a Broadway musical that would be delegated to a member of the staff because you don't have a classical composer writing it; you have a songwriter. And nothing wrong with the great Broadway songwriters, but. With Bernstein, he sort of like does this ironic take on America, doesn't he? So you hear you hear what's been this celebration of America in a, in a sense um, early, then suddenly turned vile and polluted. Yeah, and and the saving person that sort of stops it from going further than it does is Doc, who comes in, and there's a great exchange where he says, "When do you kids stop? You make this world lousy." And then the reply is, 
we didn't make it doc which kind of sums up this uh, tension between the generations and the fact that they are products of this world they're born into rattling on to the uh, denouement because Anita changes the message she's been treated so horrendously and her reaction is to say Maria's dead tell Tony that Chino has killed her that's her last act of the only thing she can do in that situation to reassert some power so Doc passes that news on to Tony who believes that Maria is dead and he leaves on a rampage to go and find Chino so just talk us through what he's going through in that final scene Andy as he sort of as he walks out into the street yelling for Chino to come and get him how did you approach that? It's Tony's hardest switch I've found basically having your, your world opened up underneath you. The whole show is him discovering what he's been looking for. Something's coming, that something came, and then it's gone again. It's realising that nothing's changing. Nothing's changing in society. It's everyone's still angry and fighting. And no matter how much I try and find something that moves me away from it, that past and that society and that life that I have always been a part of will always be there and will always pull me down. There's always going to be anger. And the thing, the thing that had, was going to change that has now gone. And he knows who's done it, so now he knows where to go and who to get. So his exit route's been shut down, and so he sort of throws caution to the wind and gets shot for it. So Maria finds him lying, dying in the street. And originally, she was going to sing a song, and they actually tried writing a musical moment for Maria. But in fact, it's a rare moment of absolute silence. Why do you think that is, Gabby, and what, what was that experience like? Actually, that's really uh, interesting you say that, because I was... I was very excited slash scared to revisit this material uh, this year because um, I, I took seven months out to go traveling with my husband and uh, in one of the cities we visited um, in Colombia, um, we actually had an incident where there was a guy with a gun and another guy with a knife. I thought I was going to lose my husband that day and my voice went, I couldn't shout. I couldn't shout for help. I couldn't do anything. And I feel like only now that I went through that and I was able to feel that I would have loved to go into that scene going, because uh, how we did it was I saw Tony and I was like, oh my God, to and then, you know, the, the bullet goes in. I feel like um, last year we were able to tap into those emotions uh, very easily by by, I guess, seeing what was going on next door, seeing what was going on in Manchester, and just even just seeing the news. But yeah, I, I feel like if, if someone would have said, okay, Gabby, and now sing, I would have been like, but, uh, but I can't. Like, I, 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 no, I was just full of rage and, and, and anger and, and um, this, this unexplainable, which is so well written, that end scene. She, it goes through the stages of grief so quickly. She gets angry and, and then she crumbles and she blames. It, it's incredible. The scene does everything for you. And probably the person we've mentioned the least in all of this is Arthur Lawrence, the book writer. And actually what I think West Side Story shows is this masterclass of concision that there's, he communicates so much through the limited bits of speech there are. He establishes characters so quickly and allows Sondheim and Bernstein and Robbins to just take that moment and make that into dance. And we're going to borrow that line, make it into a song. It's a huge journey, but in a tiny, tiny bit of speech. What an incredible talent. It was like magic. I remember when Sarah vaguely staged it and, and just kind of went and go. I remember that first time I was like, well, I'm just going to have to go for it. I don't even know if I know it. And it happened. And I remember everyone was in floods of tears. Everyone was absolutely devastated. But um, I guess it's the magic of theatre, isn't it? That the book just did it. And Nikolai, just a final word on, on that final scene. What, what do you think is the impact of that scene? What do we want the audience 
at the end of West Side Story to be experiencing or feeling. The reason there isn't many words, there isn't certainly any movement, there isn't much song at the end, it is sort of offering to the audience and it's saying, right, in the simplest, clearest, most complex, sophisticated, nuanced way, we have shown you society. And at the end of this play is a choice how you will move forward with your society. It can be with more violence, more rape, more injustice in the world, or we can start to think about diversity in its truest self. We can start to think about meeting people on their own terms, and we can start to think about moving forward. And that for me was what the ending was about. It was about offering this piece to the audience saying, now, your turn. Where will you go in your communities, in your society, in your world? And how will you, like Maria does at the end of the play, stand tall, offer forgiveness and offer a new view of what the world could be? And, and that for me is what the piece does. It sort of goes, right, on you go, change the world for the better. Bernstein described it as an out-and-out plea for racial tolerance. And do you hear a reprise of the bada, the somewhere moment? As an, as an audience, you're being reminded of, oh, that was the, the music about the possibility of redemption and a better world. It's very, very delicate, this idea of creating an egalitarian society. You really have to cling on to it and fight for it. This musical, which has been so solid and so strong in everything it attacks, whether it's the I Feel Pretty sending up or America or whatever, it's all been strong. And now this great titan of music and the Broadway stage says it's very, very delicate. And I think that for me is a sort of real warning and call to arms. We do have one more round of the quiz, just to wrap things up. Ten more questions. The first five all refer to uh, West Side Story in popular culture. Number one, when Cher presented a suite of songs from West Side Story on her TV special in 1978, who played the role of Tony? Oh, Andy, I saw you go first. She did. She played everybody. She did. She played all the parts. That's right. Every single uh, one. <laughs> uh, introductions of Rage goes, I will be playing all the parts. Uh, <laughs> and if you haven't seen that, guys, it really is really worth, worth a watch, especially once she goes into singing the, the quintet. <laughs> Number two, Sesame Street made a bunch of West Side Story spoofs for educational purposes. In one, a young boy called Tony sings a passionate song about the joys of zucchini, or as we say over this side of the Atlantic, the courgette. Uh, what was the name of that sketch? Andy. West Side Vegetable Story? Oh, you're, you're so close. <laughs> you're so close. Similar. What is it? It was Veg Side Story. Oh. Um, <laughs> Did he sing zucchini? I've just eaten fruit called zucchini. <laughs> I think it's the, the most beautiful veg I ever ate, or something like that. <laughs> Number three, in the 2002 movie Analyze That, which Hollywood actor plays a mob boss who tries to avoid prison by constantly singing West Side Story songs? Oh, is Jason. It, is it Robert De Niro? You're absolutely right, yeah. It's a good film. Whereas I well think. Done. I'm more suspicious of those that don't sing West Side Story songs constantly. <laughs> uh, number four, which hospital-based American TV show featured a fantasy sequence where doctors and surgeons faced off against each other in a hospital corridor? Andy. Is it Grey's Anatomy? It's not Grey's Anatomy. <sighs> Nikolai. <laughs> it, it's good, but it's not the one. Andy. 
Scrubs. Scrubs. We'll give you a half point because you got it wrong and then you got it right. But we'll give you the <laughs> half point for Scrubs. Uh, number five. Complete the tagline for the Gap commercials released in the year 2000, which used songs from West Side Story and the original choreography. The tagline was, are you a gene or a... I'll give you some options. A, a gene or a Joan. B, a gene or a chino. C, a gene or a suit. D, a gene or a khaki. Uh, Nikolai pooped in there. I'd say khaki. I was going to say chino, but then you said khaki. That maybe sounds like good marketing nonsense. Yeah, it is marketing nonsense. Yeah, are you a gene or a khaki was the right answer. A very good point to Nikolai there. Number six, the movie version of West Side Story won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1961. Three other film musicals went on to win the award during that decade. Name any of those three movies. Jason. Oh, that decade? In the 60s, yeah. Oh, oh. My Fair Lady. Would get you a point. Anybody else want to venture a guess at the Go, Nikolai. Funny girl. Close but no cigar. Gabby. King and I? Uh-uh, sadly oh. not. Sweet charity? Yeah. Just stop now, it's painful. Guys. Uh, the other answers were The Sound of Music and Oliver. Oh. So this is fascinating that there were four musicals that won the best picture in the 60s. Only one musical movie has won since then. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Nikolai? Is it Chicago? Absolutely right, yeah. Isn't that amazing? I'd like to point out that Johnny Green, musical director, won Oscars for Oliver and West Side Story and An American in Paris and Easter Parade, which is quite wow. awesome. That's an incredible body of work. Mm-hmm. A- extra yeah. point for Jason. Extra yes. point. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. you're, you're winning at the quiz Gold that you've set for yourself there. Congratulations. <laughs> 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 Full marks. Um, number seven. Which rock and roll star was at one point considered by the producers for the role of Tony in the West Side Story <laughs> movie? Nikolai. Elvis. It was Elvis Presley. Stop he was it. not interested. Wow. But the producers thought he'd be a good good bet. In the movie, who sings the song Cool? Oh, God, it's a character that doesn't exist on, in, on stage. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a jet that they invented a name for. And I can picture him. Great tall streak of a thing. <laughs> think, think elements. Oh, Carly? No, but he does exist. Snowboy, but no. Close. It's, it's the character of Ice who they invented because they moved uh, the placement of the song. By that point, Riff uh, was dead. And so the new leader of the Jets, who was Ice, sang <laughs> cool. Uh, last two questions. Number nine, My Nixon dubbed Natalie Wood's vocals and some other besides, but wasn't offered a royalty from the movie. She petitioned the producers to get one without success, but eventually somebody offered her a portion of their royalty. Who was it? <laughs> Nikolai. Well, I hope it would have been Natalie Wood. You'd hope, but you're over-optimistic there. Ah, that is not, in fact, rude. the case. It was Bernstein. Because basically, Marnie Nixon was paid a day rate, but not offered a royalty. But Bernstein gave her a quarter of a percentage of his. Good for Lenny. Yeah. Fair play. Hats off to Marnie Nixon, the voice of so many of these great Hollywood films. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Uh, finally, number 10. Which star of the original movie is also in the Steven Spielberg remake? Uh, Gabriella <laughs> Rita Moreno it is yeah. indeed so she's playing Valentina which is an expanded version of Doc so the quiz results the winner of part one with five points was Jason hey. Carr 
The winner of part two was Nikolai Foster with three points. But the overall winner with seven was Jason Clark. Oh, wow. So, Jason, you did, in fact, win your own quiz that you set for yourself <laughs> as well as the one that I set for you. <laughs> Guys, oh. thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I, we've, we've so scraped the surface of huge musical and dramatic and choreographic moments. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I hope you've had a fun time. Yeah, I could go on for hours. Yeah, learned so much. I should thank uh, all of our guests today. So a big thank you to Andy Coxon, Gabriela Garcia, Carly Mercedes Dyer, uh, Nikolai Foster and Jason Carr. Thank you so thank much. You thank, thank you for having us. Thank you. This has been Peace by Peace. Thank you for listening to Peace by Peace. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at PBP underscore podcast or email us with your thoughts. Peace by Peace talk show at gmail.com. Peace by Peace West Side Story was recorded remotely by Joe and Nikki Davison for Auburn Jam Music. Our guests were Jason Carr, Andy Coxon, Carly Mercedes Dyer, Nikolai Foster and Gabriella Garcia. Our theme music is by Ben Cox and our production assistant is Olivia Dowden. Piece by Piece is devised and presented by Joe Bunker and produced by Pint of Wine. Do join us again.